You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Guidepost. We've got exciting stuff to talk about today. I have my now regular uh, co-host, Blaine Chocolate. How are we doing today, Blaine? I'm doing great, man. How are you? I'm doing good. How's the world of groundbreaking, awesome, articulated flies in Central Virginia going these days? Uh you know, always trying to keep the bus on the tracks, you know, or the train on the tracks. I'm uh I'm good, man. I've got a lot of good things coming and that's that's for another day, but uh a lot of things happening in my world. So uh Well, I'll tell you what, I, I think I think it's okay it's safe to say that the fly community better uh better save up their pennies because you got a lot of cool stuff coming down the pipe. And uh and it will uh it, it will change the game on the way and what we throw at fish and how we fish. So we're all super excited to see, you know, what what comes out of your brain next in the world of design and flies. But enough about that. So we have Ron Ratliff on here from Marsh Dawn Guide Service down in are you in you live in Chauvin, but it that's a, you're in Cocodry, right? You you're pretty much fishing out of that area, Ron, right? Yes, sir. Okay. Co- cool. Cogadry, Louisiana, that area. So that is that is the end. There is nothing there is nothing past that. Not too much south of it. Tell 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 folks about what Cogadry's like, Ron. Uh Cogadry is the end of the world. Uh pretty decent food and really good fishing. And that's pretty much all you have. <laughs> but y'all, y'all have a rock solid twelve month fishery down there, don't you? Oh yeah, we do. So, uh, Ron, you know, uh, known you for a little bit. You know, I, I truly respect where you came from and how you got into this sport. Um, and you know, I know as being a guide for thirty plus years myself, I know the struggles that happened here in that that process, especially as you're getting going. Um, but you know, I'd love you to tell your story a little bit because I know it's it's not it's it's kind of unconventional. You know, you kind of kind of I've, I've kind of come from the school of hard knocks. You know, I, I had to build mine up from the ground ground up. And, you know, I really didn't have anything given to me. I had to earn it all. And, uh, you know, I know you have, too. And I'd love for you to tell a little bit of that story. Um, part of this whole thing today, too, is going to, you know, I want to highlight, you know, what you're doing. I want to highlight how beautiful it is down there, all the great fishing that is, was, and what can be, obviously. And um, some of the stuff that we are going to talk about is some of the, the um, things that happened last week with the uh, the meeting and um, some of the things that we never thought would happen. But hopefully we can kind of keep that momentum forward. But that's going to be saved for later. But I want to I want to tell your story first. I want to uh, everybody kind of know who Ron is and where he came from and, and, you know, why they need to go fishing with you because, you know, um, you didn't, you weren't the type of person that got, you know, that just 
somebody gave you the money to just kind of start your God service and just go. I mean, you, you, uh, you earned it the hard way, which I think is the best way. And, uh, you know, those are the people I want to be around and, you know, let's, uh, let's hear a little bit about that. So, uh, I started fly fishing when I was about eight years old. Uh, mom was a school teacher and during summer vacation, we used to go tent camping. We didn't have a whole lot of money. So in the eighties, the cheapest thing to do is drive somewhere. So that's what we did. And we stayed in national parks and being a free range child, I bumped into somebody fly fishing and they were gracious enough to teach me how to do it. And I brought it back home with me. Uh, fast forward a few years, we'll get past childhood, past mid, well, late teens and high school and all that. Started working in all field and that was whenever we were having kids and all that good stuff. And January 2015, uh, I was, Already, well, previous, I was guided all my days off. I would work 14 days offshore, 14 days at home, and I would guide all my days off. Uh, after a lot of political stuff went down on January 2015, ended up the oil field crashed, and I had no other choice but to go full-time guiding. And, uh, started from scratch and, uh, starved a long time and worked very hard a long time. And here we are a few years later and everything's going great. Well, um, so part of that too, you're kind of, I know, I know your story a little bit. So, uh, you know, I know you ended up in Alaska for a little bit. Um, so let, so what got you there and what made you decide to make that full plunge into guiding full-time in Louisiana and, you know, the wonderful fishery that that is and can be, um, uh, what happened in Alaska that helped you kind of decide that you were going to do this more on a permanent basis. And I, I know that's that, that in itself is a, a major decision, especially when you have a family and whatnot, but so you have to be committed to what you are going to do. And, um, you know, that also means your wife's got to be committed to what you're going to do too. So, uh, I get all that stuff. I mean, I know I've made sacrifices and we all have to do that, but I think it's, it's interesting to kind of, uh, highlight that path that you took. And I think it's important for people out there that are maybe thinking about doing the same thing you're doing. Um, is it worth it or not? I mean, you know, uh, I know it's always ups and downs and it's a lot of ramen noodles and, and beans and weenies and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, it, you know, for us, it's more of a, a passion and a lifestyle versus, you know, making money. It's not about that, obviously. So I wouldn't call it a lifestyle because eventually you do it so much. It's not a lifestyle anymore as life. And then what you do on the side turns into a lifestyle. Yeah, I guess you're right on that. But I do. It, it, it is. It is your life, though. Right. So oh, yeah. um, for me, it, can, it consumes most of it. You know, there's always that balance between being a, a husband and a father and whatnot. But, um, right. you know, that is what drives us and makes us get up and do stupid stuff 
you know. Um, I know I've done a lot of dumb things and still here to, to talk about it, but it's, you know, I'll that's, just what, say that's why we're th- doing it. Thank God they didn't have cell phones when I was young because I wouldn't be here either. <laughs> I hear that, man. So but yeah, let's, let's, hear bit, a little, let's hear about, let's hear a little bit more about where, where you, where you got that start, what made you go to Alaska and, and uh, how everything started moving from there. So after I got laid off uh, in January 15, that February, they had a fishing show in Houston called the Houston Fishing Show, which is a very original name. Um, but I go over there to kind of promote my business. My, a couple of friends of mine had a rod company, and they wanted me to tie flies at their show to kind of promote fly fishing at the show and show people how to do it, etc. And I ran into a mutual friend of ours and he's like, well, why don't you come guide in Alaska? I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm like, what you fish for up there? He's like salmon and rainbow trout and Dolly Varden. I was like, what's the Dolly Varden? He's like, Oh, it's like a trout, but a little bit meaner. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. So Fast forward, made a couple phone calls to friends and uh, ended up with a job at Bristol Bay Lodge in Alaska. Um, But before that, here's a little funny story, too. We got our fishing licenses and all that. We showed up a few days early to Anchorage and we rented a car and we go fishing down this little stream. And, uh, I'm in there. I'm about knee deep. I got redfish print sharps on, tennis shoes on, wading. I'm like wet wading in the middle of nowhere in Alaska. Across the creek walks up wildlife and fisheries officer. He goes, you see any king salmon? I go, well, what they look like? I'll tell you if I see any. <laughs> and <laughs> man, they had a train. They had a train bridge about. 400 yards up the creek by the time i walked out the water to change flies he was on me and he goes like to see your fishing license (laughs) and i gave my i was legal i just didn't know what the hell i was fishing for other than rainbow trout (laughs) he was impressed sounds like i i could i could picture that knowing you i could picture you in the water (laughs) it's like that's a great, I love that story, man. But, um, I was freezing. So tell me about that season a little bit, man. How was the, uh, the introductory and learning curve on that? You know, just throw you right into the fire. It's not like you waited in. It looked like you kind of got thrown into it. Oh, yeah, definitely. So um, we show up to the lodge, and we did roofing work for about two weeks. They throw us in these little cabins off to the side, sleep there at night, doing your roof pretty much all day or get lodge ready. I'm in the middle of my work day to go, hey, uh, go call your wife and pack your bags. I'm like, okay. I go call my wife. Said, baby, I don't know. Next time I'll talk to you, uh, they're sending me somewhere. She's like, what you mean? I said, well, they're sending me to some river to guide on. So, 
get back to go, hey, uh, you're going on the Togiak River, which is actually a beautiful, it's a larger river. And they have a lot of great little tributaries that go into it. Absolutely amazing place, magical, great fishing. Some of the biggest rainbows I've ever seen. But back up a little bit, they throw me on a beaver. And I'm flying out there sitting on a 60 Yamaha. No seatbelt, nothing. Just sitting on the outboard engine. We get there. We got First thing we got to do is go grab the boats, come around, put the outboard engines on there, and then go to camp. So we get up there, we build camp, and uh, I sat on that river for about three and a half months. Sure, you ran into some pretty interesting uh, things during that time. I mean, just the whole thing of that whole story, I, of you t- talking about flying by the seat of your pants, literally you're flying by the seat of your pants sitting on a Yamaha engine. <laughs> oh, definitely. I'll tell you what, though. I caught, uh, caught some, I figured out what King Salmon looked like and how to catch them. Caught a lot of huge fish. Caught biggest rainbow trout I've ever seen. 34 inch giant, beautiful fish. And hell, I even met a transvestite Eskimo. That was pretty crazy. That's- we traded. He gave me a bunch of ivory for coffee. It was pretty cool. <laughs> That's Perfect a true dude. story. That is a true yep. story. Oh, I'm sure you ran into all kinds of wildlife while you were on that little excursion too, right? Uh, we had bears. We had a little fox that would come sleep in a tent. We had wolves. And I'll, I'll tell you one thing. You have any close calls? Oh yeah, I've got false charged about four times. I had a stare down with a grizzly bear because he was in between me and my boat. It was a young though; it's only about seven feet. He wasn't too big. And so nobody, yelling, nobody can see Ron right now, but I can see him because it helps us work with this uh, podcast stuff. It helps us kind of talk and communicate better. But I, I'm wondering if that bear, how intimidated that bear was, looking at you right now. So <laughs> let me tell you something, man. Um, you know, it takes a lot to kind of make that plunge. I mean, to, to take that, you know, it, I'm assuming, I don't know how old you were at that time, but I'm assuming uh, for you to make that plunge, uh, did you have kids at that time? Did uh, did you, you did or did well, not? I, I made that plunge purely out of desperation for a way to pay for things. Uh, my wife had four children, uh, four, uh, so I had four step, ch- uh, step children, and then I had my son as well. Okay. So all together, we're trying to raise five kids and out of guiding and pretty much <laughs> starting out of nothing. <laughs> yep. You got to make it. So I get it. You got to make this work and you got to do what you got to do to feed your family. And, you know, I get that. So I've been there, do it on a daily basis, like right now, you know, it's why I'm here right now. That's where I've always been. It's we choose this sport because we love it. We choose it because I almost feel like it chose me too, man. You know what I mean? I, I never knew any different. You know, I, 100%, I did all kinds 100%. of different odd jobs. I always did different odd jobs to make it to where I could do what I wanted to do. Right. So, um, 
and been very grateful that I've been able to do what I'm doing. And for you, I know that. So your experience in Alaska, I'm sure kind of was, I guess that was kind of the predecessor for you to be guiding full-time in the in, in Louisiana, right? Or right. were you doing a little bit? I know you said well, you're doing a little bit part-time, but I, this coming back. I, coming back, I was guiding all winter. So the Alaska seasons during the summer. So I'd come back and hustle as many trips as I could for the winter time, so we could chase these big old redfish. Yeah, um, which I'm sure that kind of connection up there helped too. You probably got a little bit of uh, clientele from being up there um, and networking and getting to know more people and getting out there a little bit. I'm sure that helped a little bit, but it, it, uh, it just gives you. Go ahead. Actually, actually, not as much as what you would think. Really. Okay. Yeah, because you go hang out at Alaska Lodge for a, a winter time, and you're not going to see too many people that are going to go out and saltwater fish, if you know what I mean. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, I get you. I understand. Yeah. So I'm going to move into why we're really here and where you are and where you live and, you know, being entrenched in Louisiana and growing up there and living that life and, and seeing that marsh for what it is and what it can be and what it was, because we all know it's not what it used to be. Um, it it right. needs our help. And we're going to dive into that. But um, obviously it is who you are. It's what you do. It's what you wake up and go and do every morning, um, sweat through it. You know, I get that. Um, let's talk about it. Cause I love the culture of Louisiana. I love, I love the people. I love, the fact that um, the food is amazing, obviously. And I know Tony, you know, if his mic wasn't messing up, he'd jump in on that one. But uh, we were there <laughs> back in March. Uh, oh, I've seen to... him eat. Yeah. I've yeah. seen Tony eat. Yep. So, but I want to I talk a little bit about it because, you know, I've been, to, I've been down there a lot. And I love it down there. It's, uh, it's a special place. It's a place I love to get down to every year. Uh, I'd love to get down there more than – more than what I'm able to, but you know, it's, well, it's been such you know, a special place. You know, you're invited. Oh, I know you that. Know. I appreciate that. I'm going to take you up on it. And, uh, same, same here, man. I've got a bunch of cool stuff going on here, but I want to really kind of have you talk a little bit about your area and what makes your area so special and, and kind of lead into some of the things that you grew up seeing and then what you have, in the past couple of years since you started guiding. And so I want to see as your childhood, I want to, I want you to talk about what you've seen in the past six, seven years since you've been guiding. And I want to see what you think about the future. And we're going to talk a lot about the meeting that was held last week. So we can really educate everybody about Louisiana, how much help it really truly needs because everybody knows that it's probably the best red fishery, especially in shallow water in the world. And it definitely was right now. It's, it's in such peril that um, we got to do a lot of things. And we had a big step forward last week. We we're going to talk about that. I don't want to kind of get ahead of myself, but I wanna, let's talk about your childhood growing up, what you used to, what you used to do. And then what, what you saw when you first started guiding and what you're seeing now. And then we're going to kind of lead into what, what went on last week. Okay. Does that sound good? Yes, sir. All right. First off, Louisiana is probably still one of the best red fisheries around. 
but it can be a lot better. It can be what I used to see growing up. It can be what I used to see whenever I started guiding, which was only nine years ago, 10 years ago. And it's taken a pretty big downward spiral, spiral since I've started guiding, which you can still have seven, eight fish days, you know, but whenever I started guiding, you, if you didn't catch 30 redfish on fly, I mean, it wasn't a great day, you know? My best day was 57 redfish on fly, and that was my first year guiding. That was before I even knew what the hell I was doing. So. I feel you, man. I know exactly what you mean. So growing up here, you know, we used to have a lot more marsh. We used to have a lot more land mass out there. I mean, between the islands, Whiskey Pass used to be three quarters of a mile wide. I mean, I swam across it once before. I'll probably never do that again. But now it's four miles wide, four or five miles wide. So wow. it's just a ton of land degradation. And, I mean, this is, there's ways of fixing that, but that's for a whole different conversation. Right. Um. But... <clears throat> Everything's a little bit more open. And, but the interior marsh itself, like inside where the redfish come to stay, that area is so pinched off now because of all the flood protection that there's no more flow there. So it's not really providing a great area for the fish to grow up anymore. So, it's uh, a lot of fish have to stay out on the outside and just to have a healthier habitat. <clears throat> and, you know, it's just, I think there's a little bit more predators on the outside. We're getting a lot more sharks. We're getting a lot more garfish and a lot more anglers. And it's just... People probably taking a lot more than what they need to put it in a nice way, you know, as is. Yeah. And I'm sure you're seeing, I'm sure you're seeing quite a few things with the pogey boats and all that as well. Right. I mean, uh, that's, I know that's an issue. Um, I know when I've been down there, I've seen it. Uh, I see it here in the Chesapeake Bay all the time. It's a major problem here. Um, uh, None of that's helping anything. It's getting rid of the food source and it's, you know, it's indiscriminate killing too. Right. So that, oh, I know yeah, that's not definitely. helping either. Right. No, so, especially when the boats are coming, not even a mile off of the beach and they're have their gear and their nets are 14 feet deep and they're dragging them in six feet of water. There's no way these fish can escape. So they just see it as bycatch, and that's the way we actually make our living down here is off of those fish that we're feeding on that school of pogies, you know? Yeah. I, I know, man. Um, that's just one of the many problems that the, the Mars faces and a lot of the other places across our country, um, and it's just 
one of it's like a jigsaw puzzle right so there's that's one battle we got to fight that's you know what i mean so um i mean that's that's a it's a very resilient place but i mean how much can it actually take you know yep there's definitely a point of no return and we don't want to get there right so that's what we're fighting now so we don't have that happen you know I, yes. yeah, that's that's exactly how i feel about it so um, and there is that there is that point in no return it's definitely there so there's a point where you, the biomass just cannot compensate for the destruction that's happened right so well i mean you didn't inherit your fishery from your grandfathers you're borrowing it from your children exactly. wise man once told me that yep <laughs> exactly i understand that buddy um so let's let's uh let's start diving in a little bit to uh you know um some of this stuff that's going on and what happened last week at that that meeting um and for those that don't know i sat in on that meeting i know tony did and a lot of the asga members um uh, louisiana had a, a hearing about one speckled trout and but most importantly what we're kind of talking about is redfish you know because that's what really brings everybody there but not not saying that the speckled trout's not important, but the well, redfish thing. That whole speckled that whole speckled trout thing, we're not even gonna dip a finger in that mess. That is a nightmare. Um, wow. It really it was it was you know, I was on that meeting for I was there with you, buddy. I mean, I was on it the whole time. It was over five hours and uh the yeah. stuff I was seeing on speckled trout was I I just I did, there's not words for it. Uh, it like, that, really that, is not, there's not words that, to be, uh, the owner, know. the owner of the local Marina here, he was for the limited, like dropping down, um, limits. And now he's getting hate mail from people that were at the meeting. Yeah. Well, it, I, it doesn't surprise me. And I now saw those, I saw those people and, um, uh, their comments made zero sense and, you know, there's science that backs up what I'm, what, why I disagree with them and and why you disagree with them. And we could go, we could go there, but you don't need to because what we're, nah. why, why we're here is we're here for common sense and what's best for the fishery. And, you know, we're going to use science to base those facts and, you know, working with science and working with guides. The guides are, I've always said, it's the watchdog. It's kind of the canary in the coal mine. It's the watchdog of our fisheries. The anglers are the watchdogs. Guides are the kind of the chief or the head of the watchdogs, right? And the canary in the coal mine. So if we're losing trips because the fishery's dying, then that's that's a major flag, right? So let's talk about what really happened and your feelings about what's really going on. Well, the fishery maybe struggling but i I think dying is a little strong wording for that you know what right. i mean no, <laughs> but yeah, i mean saying. what what the speckled trout thing did show you was a mentality that a lot of people have where it's a kill 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 mentality versus it's, it's like a want versus need mentality which you and i both have a need over want mentality right yeah i guess that was the wrong wording but yeah i mean you know i always use that term because i've seen my local rivers and i always call it dying because you know i've seen it at its best and i've watched it just take a nosedive so i call that dying 
you know, it's like, a, yeah, or, or, or taking a nosedive. Um, we, we don't want to get to that. We don't want to no, get to no, that man. point. And that's why we're working the way we are to preserve it. Yep. And, you know, I'm doing what I'm doing now to help do that myself. And I don't feel it's viable right now where I live to guide for what I used to guide for, because in my opinion, it's gone too far. And that's right. a sad reality. So that's why I want to kind of help you and, and help express how important it is for us to always kind of be proactive instead of reactive. You know and what I mean? We greatly so, appreciate it. That is the yeah. best way to be. Yep. You got We got to be more proactive and versus just reacting to everything going to hell in a handbasket. Right. So yeah. That's, and that's, that's kind of where we are. I mean, yeah, exactly. That's what we're trying to do is we're trying to get wildlife and fisheries on the page of being proactive instead of reactive. Because yeah. once you get to the state of reactive, you're in a lot of trouble. Oh, yeah. Yep. And I, with the thing that I found in that meeting that was very compelling was how the biologists for the state had all the science that they had been doing, right? And seem to be like always trying to play with the numbers to, to make it work, you know? Um, and I could see that the board members up there were, were kind of struggling with it too, because they want to do what's right. You, right. you know what I mean? And they, they have all these different interest groups that have different opinions on what's going to go on. And, and I get it as a guide. Um, that, but you the, know, the problem you, with a problem with a lot of these special interest groups is they're caring more about their membership and their banquets than they are about the actual fishing, especially when they have conservation in the middle of their name. I mean, <laughs> what coast are we trying to protect here, fellas? We trying to protect the coast of your wallet or the coast of Louisiana? Yeah. Yeah. I hear you, man. And, and the other side of it too, is like, if you look at, that was that's a great comment, dude. If and if you look at it this way too, um, and you start looking at the other groups, like the guides that are, and I see this, and Tony, I know Tony agrees with this, and you see it all the time. And I'm not picking on them, but you, you see this old school mentality of guides that's all about the dock shots, and it's all about how many fish they bring back to the docks to take. And that's all the only reason that these clients are hiring them is to kill as many fish as they possibly can. That's legal. And that is, that's, that is the success of their day. And you know, yeah. as well as I do, the success of your day is you as a guide or a captain, you can only control a couple things. It's, it's how much fun that you can make the day for your clients. You, you could show them some beautiful scenery. You can show them beautiful water and hopefully that your knowledge of that water will produce results. And it doesn't ne necessarily mean that you're going to take a bag limit back home. So you could just throw it on the dock and say, we killed a hundred trout and whatever the legal size for reds or whatever. That is not the job of a guide or a, a true captain. In my opinion, they, they, they're, they're go ahead. All right, mine as well, but, I mean, a lot of these guys that are doing these dock shocks, I mean, they're not bad people. No, a lot of them are great, great guys. I have a bunch of friends that do it. But I think what would help 
is we're going back to the mentality, their mentality of the clientele, of what they expect. Also, the way they mark the guides, the way they actually market themselves. Yep. If, if you market a doc shot, people are going to expect a doc shot. But if you market a great experience, people are going to expect a great experience. And maybe they'll be able to take home dinner, which, I mean, people eat fish. You eat fish. I eat fish. But we don't need to overextend the fishery just to make people happy. Yeah. And and I can tell you, I mean, I had a retail store for years. I've been guiding for over 30 years. And when people hire you, they're looking for that and they're going to trust in your knowledge of it. And and I want to go back to what you just said, too. I'm not saying (laughs) any any guide or any angler or whatever is a bad person because they kept fish and that's what they grew up doing. It's a, it's a a tradition or whatever. I get that, man, but it's not sustainable, you know, especially uh, us as anglers and us as guides can only control what we can control. And and that's how I, that's how I attack my fishery, but you have all these outside influences like the pogey boats. That's, not helping anything at all. Well, you have environmental pug- things that's not helping anything at all. All you can do is control what you can do. So that dock shot, killing as many fish as you possibly can or whatever, just to make it look like you're a good angler, it's not sustainable anymore because we are dead. We have completely, not completely destroyed our, our fisheries and ecosystem, but we're definitely not where we should be, right? So- that it's just got to change in, in a positive way. It's not, it's just, you know, everybody, there's always, there was a book and something I learned a long time ago that was reluctant to change. And we as humans are always been that way. That's just our nature, you know, and it's, it's about changing that mind thought and that process of, Hey, this is not sustainable. The government's going to step in anyway if we don't do something, right? I mean, it's it's that's been proven too. I heard that come up in that meeting, you know, with with certain things. So yeah. your feeling well, on that, I know, is how I feel, and I know you you look you work closely with a lot of those captains, and and I've seen comments back um, from negative comments back from some of the results of this stuff, and it's it's a shame that we all can't come together and. I'd like to hear your feelings on some of that. You know, it's. I have a feeling not that the, not that a lot of like bait or bay boat captains and such are bad people. I just, I don't think they understand their place as a steward to the environment where it should be your job and your responsibility to protect what provides for you. And I've always taken that very, very, I've always taken that to heart very seriously because I care about my resources and I'm not even taking from my resources. I've been catching release for nine years. Right. Um, But I mean, a lot of people, I guess they don't see it as that. They see it as punching a clock going to catch our fish as fast as they can and getting back as fast as they can because their day is over because they got their limit. Now, if you take that limit and change it, I mean, it kind of helps them if they have that mentality because they might get back in 30 minutes earlier, you know? 
but it's just i don't i don't think people well i don't think guides have taken their place as being stewards of what they're of what's being provided you know yeah i mean I, that's that's well said i mean it's it, that's true i mean there, and there has to be a point where you know, and the the one thing I could say, and I've heard it from Massachusetts north and definitely Mid Atlantic, all that stuff. I mean, it got you've got these traditions of being a certain way, and and they've always done it a certain way. But we've come to the point now. I mean, it's like, and I've seen it here. I know Tony's seen it. It's like you destroy a fishery, right? Like striped bass has been struggling for a long time. And then they move on to the next fish where they can just keep keep hitting that that mark. And there has to be a point where you got to step back and say, look, what am I going to do after this fish is gone? Go to the next one. Then that one's gone. Go to the next one. You know, they, that, that process has to change in their minds. And I wish they wouldn't feel like us, and I say us as a, a, a general. Um, people. People. Fly anglers, especially because they they have a tendency to be more on the catch and release side of things. Well, and I'm not saying I mean I love to eat fish and I like you know it's not it's fine to keep it, your whatever every once in a while, but it's not it's not it's not what you want to do on a daily basis. It's just not going to work. It, it doesn't work. It's, it's almost like a smile, you know. Yep. You, you can frown a lot quicker than you can smile, but smiling takes more muscles. Yeah, but yeah. I I much prefer to smile because I mean it. You if you take something, it takes a lot longer to put it back. Yep, you know. Sure does. If and you that's cut a great a, example. That's it does a really not take. Example. It does not take long to cut a tree down, but it takes a lot longer to grow it back. A hundred percent. Yeah, and you you led me into something perfect right now because let's go let's go to the first proposed regulations and the struggles there. Um, and we had uh, getting back to this, it's like sixteen to twenty seven uh, five fish limit, and the guides got to keep fish well that went towards their their party, correct? Right. Yep. So. Now, see, also it's that one over too. So the fish, if you got two people, they could each have one. But if you have a guide and a deckhand, that's another two bull reds. And wow. that's so you can have one have over a, the slot. You could have yes. one bull over the slot. And okay. if you got a five fish limit, you keep a the deckhand and the uh, guide's limit. That's ten more fish. So altogether, yeah. that's. 24 fish yeah dead for dead. what you know yeah and and, and that, the, that so going and, back to this the whole tree being cut down is easy obviously it's you go to the dock you you know you catch your fish you clean them you whatever you get your shots whatever you know those are gone can't catch them ever again um and it it takes the gene pull out of there too right so and then uh now there's zero bulls with this new one Correct. Right. Yeah. And the timeline also, is 10 years, also the right it versus thirty, which is huge. Yeah, phenomenal. Yep. Yeah. Also, 
what helps out too is the captains used to be able to keep their limit and now they can't. So if you have a captain in the deckhand, again, that's an extra 12 fish taken out the water. So if you had four anglers, a captain, and his deckhand, that's 30 fish, 30 slot fish, and six breeder fish. Yeah. So now with the three fish, if you got four anglers and a captain and a deckhand, now you're only taking 12 fish out the water compared to, yeah, what I say, 36. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, that's a lot less. Yeah. And it's also actually, you know, to me, that's that's a lot more sustainable. You know, that's um, that's something I could live with. You know, it's the thing that you usually kind of fall into is, you know, the the uh, the tradition of being able to keep, you know, more and whatnot in the dock shots, which we talked about. Um, it's just it's just a matter of educating the clients. You know, um, I got it. I've been guiding for 30 some years and generally the clients as we talked about too they they they're looking at the captain and the guy to be the one that's going to teach them everything it's why they hire them right so they they listen and and it'll end up filtering out the ones that don't want to and it's all about the meat you know and you know to be honest you know keep it 30 some fish you're not going to eat that many fish man you end up giving them away or they go bad and whatnot yeah i, I mean it's a um I think this is a whole lot more reasonable. I mean, it's obviously allows my son and my daughter to be able to see the fishing I saw down there. Um, you know, and I know for your kids and all, it's, it's just, it's a whole lot more, makes more sense. You know, um, I would like to see it less, but obviously, you know, that would never go. And I know there's an argument as well down there that this will never fly because it's too aggressive. And I know there's some, yeah. So what's your feelings about that? I, I have my feelings and way we can kind of c- compete against it. Um, just because Louisiana generally has been more about, you know, how it's been in the past, right. With the way the regulations have been and just, you know, having with the trout and just the limits have been just astronomical. Um, I know it's going to be an uphill battle, but what's your feelings about it? Well, I think a lot of these traditions were created whenever there is a lot less people here. And I mean, it's the new slot proposal is a little bit aggressive for some to accept because they don't necessarily, they can't necessarily metabolize change. Yep. They want to be stuck in the old ways. And if you stay in the old ways with the amount of increasing pressure of people on the water, it's not really great for the habitat or the fish, you know? Yep. I agree. No, it isn't. And they also, it's, you know, it's, it's a whole lot better. What they also need to start understanding, and I know a lot of them don't even believe that there is a problem, um, but, I mean, it's hard to argue it. I, I mean, I'm not a resident down there, but I've been going down there for a number of years, and 
I've every year I've seen it kind of, I've seen the decline. I mean, I've personally seen it, you know, I've, I've stayed down there as many as two weeks straight and you, you know, you see all, you know, you're going to have good and bad fishing days. You're going to have weather issues. You're going to have tide, tide, whatever. It could be all these anomalies that happen. Um, but those factors you can't control, but if you're down in, in a fishery for, for, you know, over two weeks, you're going to, you should have, awesome days good days bad days decent days you know average whatever i mean and and um you know all i could all i could do is based on a on a angler that's coming to louisiana to see it and to see it for what it is and what it should be and, I, and it can be amazing still um but but it should be like that almost every day i mean it used to be like like we talked about and and for for the i think for the public that's a against it they need to realize it's like we don't do this it's not going to get better and then what are you going to do you have nothing you know it's i would i would much rather suck it up for a little while and get things back to where they should be and what they grew up seeing and doing than just watching it completely slide that slippery slope for the next you know x amount of years and it doesn't take much with the with like what you've talked about and I want you to talk about that a little bit more is how the environment's changed, which, which totally impacts the spawn and everything else. You know, you're losing marsh daily. And those are, those are factors that um, kind of go into another deal, but this is one thing that with regulation that we can do to help cure this, this part of the issue. Yeah. See also to talk on a mentality, I was sitting through the speckled trout meeting as well. And a lot of people were talking about the degradation of the marsh, how everything is washing away. But they flipped their hand over and then they want to argue about the way that they want to rebuild the marsh. The marsh was built by the Mississippi River dumping fresh water and sediment into the marsh. They do not want this to happen. But they don't understand that the marsh is like a living creature. And if you don't feed something, it's going to starve and wither away. And that's what we're seeing. So it's, it's a lot of old mentalities, which I get, which I get because fishing is a very, a very passionate sport and people are very passionate about what they do. So you're going to have two conflicting sides, no matter what. But if everybody can meet somewhere in the middle and if everybody wants it to get better, you know, that would be the best thing for the entire the entire outlook. But also what I noticed in the speckled trout meeting too, a lot of the people that were arguing against the the new trout limits and such, which they've been kicking that thing. They've been kicking that one down the road for since 2019. And it keeps on getting pushed back and pushed back. But the people arguing about it the most even if 
for a 30 year turnaround on trout, they're not going to live long enough to see the, see the impact of a limit change. So they just want it to stay the same. Well, you know, we, uh, we all are on the same page here. Um, we just wanted to kind of educate everybody a little bit about this, this, uh, this big turning point down there. I mean, and how do you, I think we know how we can fight this and, and, and really put pressure on the legislation down there to, to make, make this happen, you know, on, and one of them is bringing our community together, um, uh, of, of fly and conventional anglers, recreational anglers that believe in what we want and, and believe in the change and showing up at their doorstep as, as this happens. Right. So that that's one way of showing. Yes. Our yes, Matt. It's going to take everybody. It's going to take, it's going to take every troop, every soldier we can get. It's it's gonna take a lot just to push us through legislature because I mean the opposition if they show up the opposition would be strong and I mean we're facing a conservation association which seems like they care nothing about conservation they only care about how much money goes into their little certain group of people who run it. Yeah. And, you know, that's a shame that that whole, that whole association from the beginning wasn't like this, but money corrupted it. And that's sad. Yep. So I wish we could get a bunch of people to break away from that mentality and just start pushing for the future, a bright future for Louisiana. Amen to that. Because I, that is the most important thing. Yeah. Well, you know, anybody listening to this, uh, you need to go check him out. He's a great guy. A lot of fun to be with on the boat and off the boat character, to say the least. And uh, I highly recommend you getting out and fishing with him. So, Ron, I really appreciate you joining us on this. And uh, there's some important stuff we talked about today. And thank you for sharing your opinions and, and your life with us here. So we greatly appreciate that. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you and Tony and the rest of the crew from ASGA for supporting the cause, man. We greatly appreciate it. Appreciate it, man. Have a good rest of your day. <laughs>